0: Mrs. Baumgardner, for your ministry of the word in song. Join me in prayer. Lord, your word is precious. It's powerful. And we take this moment to submit our minds, our hearts, and our wills to the authority and the truth of your word. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for... Your presence here today, and we know that you're here to bless us, to teach us, and we want you to be glorified through our lives as a result of our being in fellowship with you and in your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are celebrating the 400th year anniversary of the publishing or the writing and publishing of the King James Version. It was written in 1611. I still enjoy the King James. I memorized it as a young man and over the years. But we have many wonderful translations. But in every Bible, in every Bible, there are 66 books in our Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And we know that there's not going to be any more books added to the Bible. None of them will be taken away or challenged or questioned. Every translation has 66 books. And I'm thankful for the word of God in my language. But I'm also thankful because Jenny is here representing Jars and Wycliffe. I'm thankful that the scriptures are not only written in English. And thank the Lord for William Tyndale and uh, uh, Martin Luther and uh, Wycliffe, John Whitecliff. But many of these scriptures, all of these scriptures, in fact, are in other languages as well. We had the privilege of uh, supporting Barry and Candy Wingo. You've heard me talk about them. They spent 28 years in Mexico with the Pima Indian, a tribe that did not have a written language. And they gave, they invested their lives and learned the phonetic language and wrote it down and translated, I think, some 14 different portions of God's word in the Pima language. They're now working with another particular tribe, a very hostile tribe. In fact, they've been making effort to get into that tribe. They've been there already. But the danger is so great that they had to postpone their entrance because tremendous violence there in parts of Mexico. And you can understand that. But I'm thankful for the word of God. And I'm thankful that these 66 books are given to us. The canon of the scriptures for the Old Testament was completed by the time that Jesus lived. And it referred to the fact that the Old Testament was complete. And uh, the study of canonicity is an interesting study. What qualified a book to be placed in the canon of Scripture? And the Old Testament saints, they worked, labored feverishly to make sure that every book would meet that challenge of exalting uh, God himself, Yahweh, Jehovah God. And then Jesus came uh, uh, along and, of course, the apostles And we know that there are 27 books in the New Testament. But there's probably two books that are sometimes forgotten in our consideration. They are the book of 2 John and 3 John. We're going to look at 3 John together. And I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 3 John. And uh, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about, first of all, the author of this particular book. Now, probably after we heard about Harold Camping and his false teaching in the last number of months, I'm sure some of you said, why doesn't that old guy just give up and stop predicting all of these things? Doesn't he know what the scripture says? I was listening to NPR one day when they were talking about this particular date of May the 21st. And even NPR said, well, doesn't he know that? Jesus said he doesn't even know the time or the date when uh, he will return. And it was said that they mentioned this to Harold Camping, and he says, I don't care what Jesus said. This is what's going to happen. Now he's predicting another date of October the 21st. Not all old people are to be suspicious. And um, I want to say that the author of this particular book uh, was 95 years of age when he wrote it. He wrote five books of the New Testament. You're very much aware that he wrote uh, John's Gospel. Pastor did a masterful job in taking us through verse by verse, chapter by chapter in John's Gospel. He wrote these three epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And many times we turn to 1st John. You know the difference between the two, John's Gospel. Uh, John says, I have written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. First John, he comes to the fifth chapter and he says, these things I have written to you that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might know that you have eternal life. And so the whole book of first John is to help us identify things that truly show a child of God that is looking forward to eternal life and has eternal life. And you can have that confidence. I meet many people who say, I really hope I'm going to heaven. I don't know. The book of First John, and I commend it to you. It will give you that assurance that if these various things are taking place in your life, you can be certain that you have everlasting life. But the book of 2nd and 3rd John, which we're going to look at this morning, are not as well known. But then also remember, at the age of 95, he wrote the Revelation of Jesus Christ. A tremendous book showing the judgment that is coming upon this world, but also the glory and the reign of Jesus Christ. And George Frederick Handel uh, expressed it so well in the Messiah, but particularly the hallelujah chorus. He shall reign forever and forever. Now, let me just talk a little bit about the author. He first of all introduces himself in verse one, the elder. And I think we can assume that it means an older man, a respected man and leader. But it also is the word presbyter which means an elder, one who is chosen by a congregation to be a spiritual leader in the life of that church. Now, he was actually an apostle. He doesn't use that word here. I don't know whether he was, I don't think he was ashamed of it, but he wasn't trying to show, well, I'm the, the apostle, listen to me. But like Peter, he says, I'm an elder among you elders. I'm talking to you as my little children. I love you. And many times in these particular texts, he talks about his children, a term of endearment, affection, a love, and a tremendous respect for others. But he addresses these folks as the elder. Now, remember, he was a fisherman, a professional fisherman, son of Zebedee. And uh, I believe he and his brother were known as sons of thunder. We we seem to find John a very gracious and loving man, but if he was called a son of thunder, he was probably pretty feisty in his younger day, especially before he met the Lord Jesus. But he was one of the disciples, and he was called in his gospel the beloved. He didn't identify himself. I'm John. I'm the apostle. One of Christ's disciples. No, no. He talked about the disciple that Jesus loved. And he had a very, very close relationship with the Lord Jesus. We find that Jesus said to John, uh, you take care of my mother. We don't know if John had any children, but we do know that he was a man used of God in a great way. He was the last living apostle in the year 9095, And we find that uh, uh, he... Uh, uh, was very active in the uh, early church. We find him represented there in the book of Acts when James and John were on the way to the temple. Remember the, the lame man? He was sitting there, the, begging for, the man begging for uh, whatever morsel. And James and John said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have will gladly share with you. And God healed that man. And they rejoiced because of God's power. But we find that because of his testimony and his preaching of the word of God, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. A little island about 50 miles wide, about 15 miles, uh, uh, pardon me, 50 miles long and 15 miles wide. And he was there for many years just by himself, exiled, despised and rejected. And many times I'm sure it was difficult for him. We don't hear him say very much about that, but he refers to that in the first chapter of Revelation. But he was released from that island and he came back to a church that he worked with for a number of years. The church in Ephesus Just quickly, the church in Ephesus was surrounded by nightlife, crime. Uh, It was a seaport, lots of wealth. It was also a university town. And there were a lot of young people that came into that city trying to find some success, some excitement. And I'm sure that John the Apostle and the church at Ephesus ministered to those people. But it was also a religious center. And Diana, the prophetess, was uh, there. And all of the prostitutes and all of the religious activity was all there. just want to say about... Something about the religious climate when John was living, you would think 35, 40 years from the time that most of the books of the New Testament were written, 14 of them were written by the Apostle Paul. You would think that the early church was strong and vibrant and there were no conflicts. And you, you, you heard about different things as you read the book of Acts. But there was a guy by the name of Serinthus, almost like a Harold Camping of his day. And he came up with the idea that Jesus was an aberration or a ghost. He really wasn't real. He just appeared to be human and uh, a, a human being. But he really wasn't real. And he started a philosophy known as doceticism. Doesn't matter. Don't try to remember all that. But if you do, maybe look it up. You can learn something about this man, Cerinthius. But then he also came up with Cerinthianism which said that Jesus only became divine between the time that he was baptized and just before the cross. He was not divine during the early part, only from his baptism to the trial of Jesus, and then he he was no longer divine. A lot of people bought into these different kinds of uh, isms and cults. In fact, many of these philosophies that John mentions can be traced to Mormonism, to Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, just the other day, I was listening to NPR, and there are two guys by the name of Trey Parker and Ned Stone. They have written a new musical. It's coming out on June the 7th in Broadway. It's called The Book of Mormon and i won't tell you all i listened for a half hour to these guys singing and making fun of the gospel and of the bible and so forth and one of the songs that they wrote is uh, our prophet is not one of those middle eastern prophets jewish uh, jewish prophet but we have an all american prophet joseph smith he's the all american prophet that we can follow and uh, and uh, and obey what a disgrace That's the way Mormonism has been begun. Jehovah's Witnesses, Arianism, Antinomianism, all of these different isms and philosophies of the earlier centuries are actually coming back and are in vogue today. Listen up. You'll hear all kinds of things that refer to many of these conflicts that John wrote about. So John gave an answer to that particular one that was offered by Serinthus. Would you turn with me? Just hold your finger in third, John. I'm coming back. But turn to 1 John, just a few pages over. 1 John chapter 1, and I'd like to read verses 1 to 4. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. Maybe you've read 1 John many times. I know you have. And you wondered, why was John so specific here about what he, as a disciple, saw and heard? He was combating the teaching of Serenthus. And this is what he said. That which was from the, the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You can see he's answering the attack of Cerinthus. He didn't appear. Yes, he did. John touched him. I handled him in a, an appropriate way. I saw him with my own eyes. I lived with him for three years. I walked with him. I heard him teach. He is the son of God. And he combats all of this false teaching of that particular day. Let's go to third John. And uh, verse four it's not only a precious verse, and I enjoy it, and I, I just many times am blessed by this particular verse. But I want you to see how it all fits in the teaching of Third John. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, pray that, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. Even as your soul is getting along so well, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. We find the word truth mentioned here six times. In 2 John, it's five times. John loved to talk about the truth. What is the truth? Well, we all know John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So when he's talking about truth, he's really talking about Jesus Christ. But he's also talking about another element of truth, and that is when Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So truth is not only the person of Jesus Christ, but it's the body of information and facts Details that have been given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by God himself through his revelations of the scriptures that we have in our hand. The Bible also says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And it's also said that the gospel is the gospel of truth. Now, John is saying here, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, there are many that feel when he said, my children, he may be referring to those that were brought into conversion through his ministry. And that is very, very possible. It's very possible that Gaius, this particular man in this congregation, is a convert of John, the apostle, very much like Timothy was a son of the faith of the apostle Paul. I don't know, there's no reference whatsoever of John having any children, so he can't be thinking particularly of his natural biological children. But he talks greatly in 1 John about my little children, my children, my people, people whom I love, people whom I've invested my life in, who I've been teaching, who we relate together and are part of the body of Christ, my children. And I believe that means you and I. I believe it can include biological children. And I many times thank the Lord very humbly that my children and grandchildren are walking in the truth. But I want to mention that walking in the truth is not only knowing the truth. I'm sure you've heard that even the demons know the truth very well. The enemy of our soul knows scripture better than you do, better than I do. The demons know the truth, but they're not redeemed people. Walking in the truth is more than just merely knowing the truth. And yet, knowing the truth is so important. I don't want to minimize that. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Believing the truth is so essential. But I think the idea of walking in the truth is even different. Walking in the truth seems to imply that we've come to love the truth. We delight in the truth. We enjoy hearing it. We enjoy coming and hearing the word of God expounded week after week and in our Sunday schools and in our other various ministries in the church. Walking in the truth means we ingest the truth. We apply it. We practice it. We live it day by day. It impacts our resources. It impacts every decision that we make. Our whole outlook and perspective on life is affected by the word of God. My wife and I many times talk about, I just can't believe the values, the wonderful values that our parents taught us from the word of God and then modeled those truths. Not only took us to Sunday school and church, we had to memorize the scriptures. We used to get little tickets on those days. Remember, little tickets for memorizing a verse and then we'd accumulate them and we could go and buy books and Not CDs in those days. We didn't even have tapes in those days. Big platters, you know, those records. You could buy things with those tickets. But walking in the truth implies that we've come to obey the truth. We see its commands. They're God's commands for not only success, but for life. And and John even says, I've written these things that your joy might be full. We sang, when we walk with the Lord, the only way we're going to be happy is to trust and obey. We need to trust the word of God. It is trustworthy. This morning, Pastor Brandt had an excellent study on archaeology, showing how many of the artifacts that have been dug up from history many thousands of years ago, they were there buried, have been found, have been shown to us, how they verify, how they verify the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the scriptures. But walking in the truth is more than just knowing something from the Bible, dabbling in the truth. We need to study the truth, but we need to take it very seriously and and live it day by day. And that's what John is saying. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, uh, children that I've taught, children that I uh, are part of in my churches and children that I've known, not only little children, uh, we're still all children, aren't we? And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he helped to write five books of the truth. And the canon has been complete in the New Testament as of 397. The Council of Carthage said there are only to be 27 books in the New New Testament. Not 28, not 31, not 24 at 27. It's amazing how John could remember all the things that he wrote about Jesus in his gospel. I, you know, I can remember names and dates and telephone numbers and that kind of thing, but uh, when you get a little older, you, you, you forget a lot of things. Uh, can we trust John at the age of 90, 95, to write five books, and can we believe that they're all accurate and and right? Of course. Jesus said to the disciples in John fourteen twenty five. He said, The Holy Spirit who is coming will teach you everything that I have said and done, and you will remember these things that need to be recorded. And the Word of God says in Second Timothy three sixteen, All scripture, every part of Scripture is God breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so The Holy Spirit was watching over this old man so that he would write only what God wanted to be written. And everything that he has written is accurate. Oh, there's been many, many challenges to John's writings. But they're true and they're accurate. He is a man of the truth. Now, I want to quickly go to. Three examples. He writes to this little church. We're not actually told the name of the church. There were a lot of little satellite churches around Ephesus. And there were people that went out and planted these churches. He's referring to the itinerant teachers, missionary teachers that were sent out by the local church of Ephesus. These men were equipped to preach the gospel. They would go into the communities and evangelize, and they would share the truth about Jesus Christ with anybody who would listen. Gaius was probably a convert of John, the apostle, and he went to a little town nearby. He was willing to live there with his family, and we find that he was a man who really walked in the truth. And John is complimenting him, and I read it for you there. One of the interesting things, the man must have been probably sick because he said, oh, I wish that your health would be equal to your spiritual condition. We many times think the opposite, don't we? Uh, We're spiritual, but oh, we wish we had better health. This man was sick. And John is saying, oh, I wish that your health could be as good as your spiritual health. Oh, I wish that could be said of me. Oh, I, I just wish that my spiritual life was far superior to my health. Gaius had a spiritual life. Why was he recognized as being a man of truth? Well, many of these itinerant preachers would come to this little church. And when they would come back to John, they would report to him. They would say, you, you, you can't believe how this man Gaius is walking in truth. What a godly man, a man that loves people, loves the Lord, loves the truth of God's word. And one of the evidences of this is how hospitable he is to all of these missionary teachers that come into the church there. And it says that uh, John recognizes that. And he says, when you welcome these people, you welcome them as if you were welcoming God himself, Christ, as if Christ was coming to your congregation. And he says that you not only welcome them and receive their word and their preaching and teaching, but you give them food, you give them clothing, you even pack a lunch when they're ready to go. You escort them out of town. This man, Gaius, had a wonderful testimony, not only in that local church, but all over the Middle East there. Because John says that you This man's testimony, his faithfulness, was known by many everywhere. They knew that Gaius was a a giant in the faith, a godly man. Then he compliments him. Then later on in the chapter, look at verse 12, if you will. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius might have been the one that carried this letter to this small church, to Gaius and to the congregation. There were wonderful examples, Gaius and Demetrius, men who walked in the truth. Not just being hospitable doesn't make you walking in the truth, but it's an evidence that you love the truth and you're walking with Christ. And you welcome those that lift up the the name of Christ. One of the evidences of walking in the truth is we'll stand for the truth. We'll defend the truth. Steve Brown, the other day, was talking about a man in his community, and he was a pastor for many years. And he said, uh, we had a ministerium and this ministerium was discussing a theological issue. And all of the men in that ministerium said, no, 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 we don't need to buy into that stuff. That's. Passé, that's something uh, old people always did years ago. We don't need to get excited about that. And Steve Brown said, you know, I listened to those guys and almost I agreed with them. And then I realized my job is to stand up for the truth and to take uh, uh, take a real stand publicly for what, what the truth says. And he said, I stood up and said, no, no, I'm not going to have any part of this decision. And the word of God teaches this. And I'm going to defend what the word of God says. Sometimes it's really tough to take a stand for truth, isn't it? A lot of pressures on us. A lot of things can go through our mind and our heart when we're really up against something that's really tough. Some tough decisions. Walking in the truth is standing for that truth. And Gaius was one. But let me show you the other example that's given here by John the Apostle of another man by the name of Diotrephes. Look, if you will, at verse 9 to verse 11. John begins by, I wrote to the church. Evidently, there was another letter that he had written. But it was either ignored, buried, or destroyed by Diotrephes. It says that Diotrephes loves to be first. It was a man, he was a man, who made himself first in the congregation. Contrary to what the Word of God says, John the Baptist said when he met Jesus, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. Paul's writing to the Colossians in the first chapter says that in everything, Christ must have the preeminence. This man wanted to be prominent in the church, and he was making all the decisions, calling all the shots in the church. It says he will have nothing to do with us. Now, this isn't some kind of a personal conflict necessarily. But Diotrephes had rejected the authority of. Of John the Apostle. John was appointed by Jesus. Anointed. Commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and the early church to be an apostle. And it says, Diotrephes says, will have nothing to do with John the Apostle. He rejected his advice. He rejected his authority. He rejected him as a person. Goes on to say, so if I come... I will call attention to what he is doing. And John is going to be coming. There's some things he's not going to talk about here in this letter, but he wants to talk face to face with this man, Diotrephes. But he says, I'll call some things into attention because he is gossiping maliciously about us. I think the King James and some other translations talks about prating. It's an old English term talking lies, just spreading rumors, gossiping, talking about things, making charges about a a man of God or a servant of Christ that are not true. And it says that he maliciously, continuously just puts John down, makes fun of him. Oh, he's the old man. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Where does he think he has all the authority to tell the church what to do? And it says that this man, Diotrephes, does totally reject it, John the Apostle. It says he was not satisfied with that, but he refuses to welcome the brothers, another word for these missionary itinerant teachers. When they would come, he says, No way, you're not coming into this church. You're not going to speak here and address our assembly. We're not going to give you any financial help. We're not going to allow you to be in this congregation. He rejected the brothers. And he refuses to welcome the brothers, but he also stops those who want to do so. There were evidently people like Gaius, Demetrius, others in the congregation who really appreciated these visiting missionary teachers. And they love to do this. But he says, no way. I I refuse. I, I, I will not allow you to support them. No money from this congregation is going to these missionaries. And they're not even coming in. And anybody that even welcomes these people or keeps friendship with them, writes to them, has any kind of contact with these missionary itinerants, they're excommunicated from this church. Excommunication is a very serious thing. First of all, it is something that only is done corporately by the church. I won't get into the details of that, but excommunication Is only in severe situations of immorality, something that defies the truth of God's word. But discipline, any kind of discipline, is always meant to be restorative, to rescue the person. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, If any of you have been taken in a fault, you who are spiritual, as brothers, Lift up that individual, pray for him, rescue him, restore him to fellowship. That's the important thing. But this man became a dictator in this church and was excommunicating these people. What a sad picture. You know, sometimes we get a picture of the early churches being just perfect. Oh, wonderful. I was talking to Andy Merrick last night. That's the brother of Chris Merrick. And he is a missionary servant supported by our Bible Fellowship Church. And he shared this word we were talking about, serving the Lord. And he says, you know what? The spiritual life is a battle. It's not a picnic. Serving Jesus Christ is exciting, the most wonderful thing. And next week, I'm going to be observing my 58th year in the ministry. I love the ministry. But I'll tell you, he said the ministry and serving the Lord is a battle. It's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. People will devour you and eat you up. And the attitudes that people have, I know all about that. But one of the interesting things that I noticed about Gaius. Gaius, while seeing what Diotrephes was doing in this church, never became disillusioned never became disgusted, discouraged, never became ugly, resentful, bitter, hateful. You don't hear. Do you know what it must be like to be in the church where a man runs everything and people are thrown out of the church if they endorse missions and pray for missionaries and welcome them into their homes? We know nothing about that here in this church. Nothing. Nothing. Thank the Lord for that. Praise God for that. But I know there are some churches where for years they've heard a liberal gospel and another pastor comes in and wants to preach the word and and emphasize evangelism and, and emphasize missions. And what a battle, what a battle. But what a beautiful testimony of Gaius, who was a man who walked in the truth. See the difference? He didn't only know the truth. He didn't only read it casually. He was walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. And he didn't become angry. He didn't take things into his own hands. He probably prayed. We're not told what happened, but probably prayed for diatrophies. Gathered many of the people that were faithful to the Lord and, and enjoyed the word of truth. Uh, We just keep praying, we keep serving, we keep honoring the Lord. We don't give up, we don't get discouraged, we don't throw in the towel. We're going to keep serving the Lord. Is it any wonder that John says here in this epistle, it's a very unusual letter. He says, when I come, I'm going to deal with this man and I'm going to see him face to face. And John was no pushover. He probably told it like it is and dealt with this issue when he came. But he said, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. That's quite a superlative. The other week when Brother Bruce Ellingson was with us for our anniversary, he asked the question, what really brings gratification to your heart? What really makes you excited there are a lot of wonderful things in the Christian life that bring joy. Don't you agree? My, there are scads of things that, we, that bring us great joy and excitement and, and, and are thrilling to see what happens. But John says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. Notice he didn't say, I have such great joy when my kids are successful healthy, academically successful, uh, prestigious and famous in the community or financially comfortable. No, he didn't. He wasn't rejoicing in that. And I, I have grandchildren. I get excited when they're able to get a job, have a mate, get married, all these kind of things. But John says, I have no greater joy. And he wasn't talking anything about himself. What I did, boy, this brought me joy. No, my greatest joy is found in others. When he says, my children, any child of God is my child, too. You are my brother, my sister. And when you have a love for your family, for the family of God, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. I've been among you now for sixteen years. I see your children. You have good reason to rejoice in your children as they walk in the truth. Many of them are walking in the truth. And I want to say you know sometimes i I thank God for it, but sometimes I get a little proud. my My girls are walking with the truth. They're, one's married to a pastor, another to a faithful. A man who works hard, serves the Lord in the life of the church. My grandchildren all know Christ. You know, I couldn't help but think this past week. I don't want to ever take any praise, any glory, any pride in my children or grandchildren. Because I know one thing. That if my children are walking in the truth, it's a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives. It's the result of faithful Sunday school teachers, friends, Bible teaching pastors. Many, many contributing factors entered into my children and grandchildren walking in the truth. It wasn't because of me. And I believe you can hear John say, I have no greater joy than to see what the Holy Spirit has done in my children's lives promoting and encouraging them to walk in the truth. No greater joy, not only for the parents, for you as parents, I'm sure you can say, I know what you're talking about. I don't think there's anything better in life to know that my children know Jesus Christ and are walking in the truth. Young people, I love you. I thank God for your lives. I see you growing and maturing in the faith taking responsibility in the life of the church, in your homes, in your careers and professions. If you really want to make your mom and dad happy, your pastor really happy, if you want to make the Lord Jesus Christ happy, I love that scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father, interceding in our behalf. Jesus Christ went to the cross in shame, but with joy. Because he knew one day he would be satisfied to see the results of his death and his resurrection. Are you walking in the truth this morning? How did I learn to walk in the truth? I saw the model in my mom and dad. God's people in our church can't expect our young people to just out of the hat become spiritual giants. They're watching us, imitating us, looking at us, listening to us. Oh, may all of us, either as a parent, grandparent, a Sunday school teacher, a leader in the youth group, may we know the joy, a superlative joy, a greater joy than any kind of joy you have ever experienced, is to see and hear that your children are walking in the truth of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of this early church. The struggle that Gaius experienced, but thank you for his faithfulness. He didn't give up. He didn't get discouraged, disillusioned. Oh, Lord, I thank you for our parents, our grandparents. I thank you for our young people. I thank you for our missionaries. Thank you for our pastor, Pastor Reed, Pastor Brandt. I thank you for the faithful teaching of your word from this pulpit week after week after week. And I thank you for the way the truth is lifted up, elevated, and defended. Lord God, help us to know that joy ourselves of walking in the truth, and then our children and grandchildren embracing and walking in the truth of Jesus Christ. For we pray it in his name. Amen.